We continue our study in Jeremiah chapter 12. I'm going to read the first four verses, and we're going to take it section by section. Jeremiah prays, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Let, yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? You have planted them, yes. They have taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. But you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me. And you have tested my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and birds are consumed for the wicked of, the, of those who dwell there because they said, he will not see our final end. Chapter 12 continues Jeremiah's themes from chapter 11. The people, you'll remember, had broken God's covenant. They had promised to obey God. They had promised to follow God. And they broke their promise. They didn't obey God. And they didn't follow God. And the consequences of violating the covenant included God's inescapable judgment. And so the people reacted against the preaching of Jeremiah in chapter 11, verses 18 through 23. The nation didn't want anything to do with a prophet who exposed their sin and then the consequences of that sin. And you'll remember that Jeremiah loved his family. Jeremiah loved his nation. Jeremiah loved the fellow priests that he served with and that he had grown up with in the little village called Anathoth. And Jeremiah was deeply wounded by their persecution and plots to kill him. You know, there's nothing that will take the air out of a relationship when someone attempts to kill you. That's sort of a relationship killer, isn't it? When someone wants to see you dead, it can take the joy and the affection right out of the relationship. You'll remember in chapter 11 that the Lord revealed to Jeremiah the plot to kill him. And the people wanted to silence the message of Jeremiah. And they thought what many people have thought throughout the years. If I can kill the man, I can kill the message. But we've discovered something. That killing the man doesn't kill the message, does it? It began with Abel when Cain killed his brother Abel. And remember Abel's message. It was, why not love the Lord? Why not submit to him? Why not serve him and worship him? And his life became... Absolutely and unbelievably offensive to his brother. Fast forward to the time of Jeremiah and his message. It was an offensive message. Fast forward even further to Jesus. His message 
was an offensive message. Fast forward to people like Martin Luther King Jr. His message was offensive. And guess what? Someone took it upon themselves to kill him. But killing the man didn't kill the message. And we understand something. Jeremiah did the only thing that he could do when he discovered that there was a group of people who were out to kill him. He prayed. By the way, if you're a police officer or a law enforcement officer, you probably already know that in training, people will tell you that there's no known defense that we have against ambush. We understand something that if someone or a group of people take it upon themselves to kill you, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. And we know that Satan, like a roaring lion, prowls throughout the earth seeking whom he may devour. But guess what? You have a Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. There is a good God who watches over you. There was little hope of Jeremiah defending himself. So he asked the Lord to execute true judgment on the evildoers. And so the attempt to kill Jeremiah wouldn't succeed. And the attempt to silence Jeremiah's message from the Lord also wouldn't succeed. And the persecutors and their families would be punished for their wicked behavior. By the way, not a single descendant of the evildoers' families would be left alive when the invading armies of Babylon would come in from the north and the east. They would sweep over the village of Anathoth and and all of the people who had hoped to kill Jeremiah would be destroyed. A disaster would strike. Now Jeremiah asks the Lord a question about justice and judgment. Why do the wicked prosper? Why does it seem that evil deeds and evildoers seem to go unpunished? And of course, Jeremiah knows the problem can't be with God since God is righteous and he includes that information in verse 1. Yet Jeremiah wants to know why God seems to bless the wicked when the wicked are living hypocritical lives and making false professions and false accusations. And Jeremiah confessed that he knew God's heart and that he wanted God's justice and that he wanted to see the punishment of the wicked in the day of slaughter. And when Jeremiah uses the term the day of slaughter, he means the day of God's judgment. He wondered how long the land And the godly would suffer under God's discipline. He's talking about the droughts. He's talking about the conquests. He's talking about the destruction to the land. And so the Lord's going to answer Jeremiah. And God's answer will motivate Jeremiah to greater courage and more profound faith and confidence and submission. And that becomes a clue for each and every one of you. That sometimes hardship and disability becomes an opportunity to submit and rely on the dependence of the Lord. God will speak to Jeremiah that as bad as the future is and the dangers that it holds out, the things that are happening right now 
and the things that will happen later, he likens the future dangers of running against horses or running in a thicket. The future opposition and persecution would increase in frequency and intensity. So much so that Jeremiah wouldn't even be able to trust his own family. And beginning in verse 7 through chapter 13, verse 27, the Lord is going to take a snapshot, if you will. Eleven pictures in the family photo album. Three of those pictures we're going to look at in this chapter. We're going to see the picture of a forsaken house in verses 7 through 9. The picture of destructive shepherds and their flocks in verses 10 through 13. The picture of evil neighbors in verses 14 through 17. How God would judge them, but he is still going to extend hope to the unbeliever, to the make-believer, to the wicked, to the person who's willing to turn from their sin and to trust him. And it reminded me of the similarities between Jeremiah and Jesus Christ. And we've now gone through 11 chapters, beginning in the 12th chapter. And there's just a couple of things before we continue that I want to bring to your attention. Warren Wiersbe in his outlines on the Old Testament has a paragraph that I want to read to you. It says, and I quote, the similarities between Jeremiah and Jesus Christ are worth noting. Neither married, Jeremiah 16.1. Both were rejected by their hometown, Jeremiah 11.21, Jeremiah chapter 12, along with Luke chapter 16. Jeremiah ministered under the menacing shadow of Babylon. Jesus ministered under the terrifying shadow of Rome. Both were considered traitors by their people. Jeremiah was viciously opposed by the false prophets. Jesus was viciously opposed by the scribes and the Pharisees and the false teachers of his day. Both wept over the city of Jerusalem. Both predicted its ruin. Jeremiah gathered few disciples around him. Jesus had a small following. Both were arrested and persecuted. Both emphasized a religion of the heart and not one of merely outward form and ceremony. It was Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11 that Jesus quoted when he cleansed the temple and told the priests that they had made his home a den of thieves. Both emphasized the new covenant in the heart. Jeremiah 31 13 or, and 31 through Jeremiah 31, 31 through 37, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. In their preaching, both used striking illustrations and comparisons. Both revealed a tender, sympathetic heart that was crushed by the wickedness of a nation that should have obeyed God's word. In the end, it seemed that both were failures in their lives and ministries. But God honored them and made their work successful, unquote. And so once again, we need to pull it in just a little bit and look at Jeremiah's heart. Look what it says in verse one. The Lord is righteous. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse one, it says, righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you about your judgments. 
Do you understand what he's saying? Things aren't going well. I know that you're a good God. I know that you're a righteous God. I know that you're always right and you're always true. You're never wrong. But we need to have a little conversation. Have you ever had a prayer like that? I know that you're good. I know everything about you is good, but I need your help in explaining the circumstances that I find myself in. And then he asks the question, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? Haven't you ever asked that question? Doesn't that person realize they're going to hell? Doesn't that person know that rebellion and resistance and estrangement from God is going to have catastrophic circumstances? How can the people who are wicked and estranged from God feel like nothing is wrong in their life? And I think that there's a reason why the question is asked. Why do the wicked prosper? Because most people believe that one ought to reap directly, immediately, visibly. You put in a peach seed, you grow a peach tree. You put in corn, you grow corn. You expect, like we've been talking about on Sunday morning, you pierce the soil, you put the seed, you expect whatever the seed to plant, you expect it to, to reap directly, immediately, and visibly. If you lie, if you cheat, if you steal, you think you're going to get, they should be caught and punished immediately. But is that true in your life? Has that ever been true in your life? You see, experience tells us otherwise. The Bible teaches the Lord hasn't dealt with us according to our sin or rewarded us according to our iniquity. Don't you ever just simply pray to God and say, thank you that I'm not getting what I deserve. Thank you for your mercy and thank you for your grace and thank you for your generosity and thank you for your patience. Who's been more patient? Who's been more gracious? Who's been more loving? Who's been more kind than the Lord? Job faces the exact same question in Job chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Job chapter 16, verse 11. Job chapter 21, verses 7 through 12. Habakkuk asks exactly the same question, almost in exactly the same way in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In Habakkuk chapter 1, it says, The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you not hear? Even cry out to you, Violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. You know who you see at the courthouse? Not justice. Just us. <laughs> That's part of the point. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. What Habakkuk is saying is, I'm looking around and people go into the court and they come out of the court. They go into the jail and they come out of the jail. It seems like it's a revolving door. The answer in part lies in the fact that the wicked's judgment is postponed and delayed. The prosperity of the wicked 
no matter how prosperous they are, is short. It will only last a lifetime. But when your life is all that there is, and when your life is all that you've ever known, you sometimes get locked into the false thinking that this life is all that there is, and these circumstances are all that matter. But God has an eternal perspective. Judgment postponed and judgment delayed is still judgment. And by the way, the righteous will triumph in eternity. In verse 2 it says, you have planted them. Yes, they have taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. In other words, this is Jeremiah's way of saying, you, you brought the Jews to this land. You brought them to Judea and Jerusalem. You planted them in this place. They've been here for generations. When Jeremiah is writing this, hundreds and even over hundreds and hundreds of years have gone by since the children of Israel have reentered the land from Egypt. David and Solomon and the divided kingdom, you're marching forward into time to about 500 B.C. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. But guess what? It's rotten fruit. It's not fruit to the Lord. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. They talk about Jehovah. They talk about Jehovah. They go to the temple. They have prayers. They have books. They have readings. They have culture. They have traditions. But relationship, friendship, it's far from them. In verse 3 it says, But you, O Lord, know me. You've seen me and you've tested my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. Remember, in that day, particularly in the temple, they would separate the lambs and the sheep for slaughter. They would separate them and the sheep have no idea where they're going and they have no idea what's ahead for them. He says, you've tested my heart toward you. You know the truth about me. You know that I love you. You know that I'm listening to you and you know that I'm willing to submit to you. And remember, part of the point of the passage is there are people trying to kill me. And I have no way to make it stop. And the only way that it's going to stop is if you make it stop. And in verse 4 it says, How long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said, He will not see our final end. In other words, the whole land and its occupants begin to see the consequences of consistent rebellion and refusal to obey God. And in verse 5 it says, is the answer. If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with the horses? Now remember what Jeremiah has asked. Why do the wicked prosper? Verse 5 is the Lord's answer. And guess what? It's not the answer you were looking for, is it? What kind of an answer is this? If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with the horses? In other words, the Lord is giving Jeremiah a sense in which if you ran with the footmen, in other words, you've put up with human beings in a human race. 
How are you going to survive when something so much stronger and so much quicker comes upon you? It says, and if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? In other words, remember when all of this is happening, there's a semblance of peace. There's a semblance of propriety. There's a semblance of order. There's a semblance of security. But remember, remember, remember what's on the horizon. Judgment is just right around the corner. And then in verse 6 it says, For even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Here's the idea. His family and friends in Anathoth have entered into the conspiracy. In other words, imagine, you know, your brother, Jeremiah, you know, your cousin, Jeremiah, you know, your uncle, Jeremiah, and the message that he keeps repeating over and over again. Turn from your sin, turn to the Lord, abandon idolatry, renew the covenant. We're sick of it. We're sick of his message. We're sick of it. We want him to shut up, but he won't shut up. We've approached him nicely, but he continues to talk. We've approached him not no ni- not so nicely, he continues to talk, to talk. We've made actual threats, he continues to talk. Even they have dwelt, dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they sme- speak smooth words to you. In other words, the Lord is speaking to Jeremiah, and he's saying, there are going to be people who come up to you and they're, they're going to say, hey, we're on your side. Not really. We're not trying to kill you. <clears throat> hey, we're not part of those people who want to see you dead. The Lord's saying, don't believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. Can you imagine Jesus reading this hundreds of years later? Rabbi, we think that you're an important rabbi come from God. We think you are the coolest thing since sliced bagels. And the Lord's going, don't you believe them? Don't you believe them? And then he paints the picture. The Lord is going to paint a series of pictures. Has anyone ever said to you, Let me spell it out to you. Let me draw you a picture so that you won't be mistaken. That's exactly what he does beginning in verse 7. I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. In other words, the judgment is coming. The judgment is coming. But each of the first three lines in verse 7, verse 8, verse 9 begins with a verb, ends with a possessive pronoun attached to the noun. And look at those possessives. You should underline them if you're one of those people who underline your Bible. Look what he says. My heritage, the dearly beloved of my soul. The friendship of my soul. Even in judgment, God refers to his people in terms of personal possession. Over and over again, God refers to his people. Look what it says. They're my house, my heritage, my dearly beloved of my soul, my vineyard, my pleasant portion. Doesn't that tell you something? 
It's the angst. I love you. I care about you. I don't want to see this happen to you. There's a reason why I redeemed you and set you apart. There's a reason why I rescued you out of Egypt. There's a reason why I placed you in the place where I placed you. There's a reason why I sent you prophets. There's a reason why I gave you a Bible. There's a reason why I gave you promises. There's lots of reasons why it isn't because I hate you. It's because I love you. The reason why I've done all of this is because I've always longed to have friendship and relationship with you. And so in verse 8 it says, My heritage is to me like a lion in the forest. It cries out against me. Therefore, I have hated it. I want you to understand the imagery. The rebellion is wild and savage and ferocious. Ephraim has turned savagely against her creator. Have you ever heard someone say, I hate you, God, and I don't want to have anything to do with you? And you cringe. You, you literally, your armpits begin to sweat and your palms begin to sweat. You can feel yourself getting weak in the knees as you understand the blasphemy that is taking place as little dirt clods shake their little dirt clod at the living creator who made them and created them from the very dirt that they're shaking in God's face. And so the image is, imagine you are stumbling along a path and all of a sudden you see a lion and the lion bears its teeth and begins to roar and you understand something that that is a savage ferocious beast who has if he could he would eat you and so that's the imagery lions were still found in the land and so he says my heritage is like a lion in the forest it cries out against me that savage bitter ferocious rebellion and he says, therefore, I've hated it. By the way, this is very strong language. The Targum, the Jewish commentary, attempts to soften the language. It, it says, I, you hear my heritage, my beloved. How, how, do you, how do you do this? How do you both love with such an exquisite love and then hate with such an exquisite hatred? Have you ever been betrayed? Has someone you loved ever betrayed you? And you find yourself saying, I love him. I hate him. I love him and I hate him. Which is it? Both. Which more? Right now it's hate. A few minutes ago it was love. Now I'm back to hate again. Here's the idea. Are you willing, really, to stand face-to-face -face and toe-to-toe -to -toe with the king of the universe and deny him, ignore him, reject him, curse him? 
in the sight of God, these people, again, are like the roaring lions. God will abandon those who stand in opposition and defiance and rebellion and stubbornly curse his name. He will forsake them and execute judgment on them. And that's why my hair curls every time a person says, I don't want to know God and I don't want to have anything to do with God. And I don't want to have anything to do with the Bible. And I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. It's an invitation to judgment. It's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 37, where he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. And I don't mean drug. I mean with rocks where they throw them at you. How often I would gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you weren't willing. In Matthew 23, 38, it says, see Your house is left to you desolate. Do you understand Jesus' words? They're very much like Jeremiah's words. I warned you. I pleaded with you. I begged you to turn from your sin and turn from your rebellion and turn from your selfishness and turn from your disobedience and embrace the Lord and walk with him and know him and love him. And Paul writes in Romans chapter one, verse 18, for the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress. That means they cover it with a blanket, the truth and unrighteousness in Romans 119, because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. In other words, the invisible, eternal God has left a compelling message for the planet Earth. A good creator, a gracious and wise designer loves you and made you and wants to have fellowship with you. And in verse 9, Jeremiah says, my heritage is to me like a speckled vulture. The vultures all around are against her. Come assemble all the beasts of the field. Bring them to devour. Do you understand what you're reading? When it says my heritage is like a speckled vulture. This isn't an endearment. This isn't a hallmark card. This isn't a compliment. Being called a speckled vulture. Is disgusting. You see, the speckled vulture is a disgusting carrion bird of prey. And the speckled vulture is covered in a different plumage, if you will, that is so distinct that other birds of prey will attack this vulture. In other words, here's the idea. Among all the birds of prey, it's the most disgusting. It is so disgusting that even other disgusting birds will attempt to kill it. It's sort of like going to prison. What did you do? Tax evasion. What did you do? Murder. But he deserved it. What did you do? Child molester. Speckled vulture. Everyone else in the prison will say, I'm bad and wicked, but you are disgusting. And I'm going to attempt to kill you. That's the point. My heritage is to me like a speckled vulture. Think about what the Lord is saying. The rebellion and the sin is disgusting. 
The sins of the people brought a sense of disgust. The people devoured sin the way vultures feed on the rotting flesh of dead carrion. Have you ever seen a vulture eat something that's dead? I know what you like to do. I'll watch it on Animal Planet from a distance. But if you watch it up close and personal, have you ever smelled something that was dead and it was dead for a very, very long time? And just the smell begins to cause your stomach to turn and it takes every ounce of your willpower to keep from throwing up. Can you imagine if someone who loved you said, I love you, but the thought of being near you makes me want to throw up. Would you like question their sincerity? But that's part of what's happening here. Because of the people's terrible sin. Because of their persistent rejection of God. They would face horrible consequences. And the Lord renders his verdict. In spite of his great love and in spite of his great affection, he would allow other vultures, that is Babylon and its allies, the unbelieving wicked nations, to consume his heritage. And so he paints another picture. Destructive shepherds and their flocks. Look at verse 10. Many rulers have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. Now think what it says. Many rulers. This is the religious leaders. These are the kings and the religious leaders. They have destroyed my vineyard. In other words, part of the point of the decline of the people was the failure of the leaders to lead. Remember, part of the responsibility of the leaders was not to point them away from God, but to point them to God. Part of what it means to be a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, part of what it means to be a pastor, part of what it means to be a friend, and part of what it means to be a neighbor is to not point people away from Jesus, but to point them to Jesus. Not to point them away from God, but to point them to God. And he says that the leaders have destroyed my vineyard. And remember that image of a vineyard is something that's been carefully cultivated in order to produce Juicy, squeezy, tasty fruit. But what he does is he likens it to a picture of people who have gone into a vineyard and who begin to tear it down. In some of my summers when I was growing up, my my paternal grandma and grandpa lived in New Orleans and my maternal grandma and grandpa lived in the wine country up near San Jose. There was a place called Hollister and there was wine country and then there was a, some, a place called um, Coyote, which was uh, back in those days out in the, in the suburbs and there were beautiful vines everywhere. And wicked children would sometimes go in and they would tear the vine down and they would trample it for no good reason. It's because they were wicked, delinquent children. Can you imagine growing up in a world where you think of other people's property because it's not your property? 
that you have license to destroy it. Imagine you live in a world where you're more than happy to walk into a brand new building subdivision and take baseball bats and break the lights and break the walls and break the furniture. Because just because it's not yours, you think that you have the right to destroy something that you resent and you are angry because it's not something that belongs to you. And so you feel compelled to destroy what belongs to others. And that's exactly what these rulers had done. You see, mothers and fathers, your children don't belong to you. You see, brothers and sisters, that the people that God has brought into your life, they don't belong to you. In a very real sense, each and every one of us are a heritage that has been given by God and we have been entrusted with a stewardship. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. The old King James reads, many pastors have destroyed my vineyard. Let's just ask them the the simple basic question. Why? Why did they do that? Why did they trample the vineyard? Because they don't care about the land. And they don't care about the vine. And they don't care about the fruit. And they don't care about God. We care about the land and we care about the vine and we care about God. Really? Do you really? Then why would you tear it down? And why would you stomp it underfoot? If you really care about the land and you really care about its fruit and you really care about the Lord, then why would you continue to go in the direction away from him? And in verse 11, look what it says. They have made it desolate. It mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate. Because no one takes it to heart. The word translated desolate in the Hebrew is Shema Ma. It means completely void and useless. It's when you take something and you mar it so that it becomes no longer useful to anyone. Desolate. It mourns to me. In other words, what the Lord is basically saying, he's creating this image of this empty, dark place that has been ruined. And it cries out to him because it never gets to do what it was intended to do. A vine and the vineyard and its fruit were meant to provide sustenance. And you were meant not only for God and to be used by God, but you were meant to fulfill the plan and the purpose that God has for you. In verse 12, look what it says. The plunderers have come on all the desolate heights in the wilderness for the sword of the Lord shall devour from one end of the land to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. The sword of the Lord, by the way, is a military metaphor. In other words, in a prophetic sense, what Jeremiah is doing is reminding them that this isn't a hurricane. This isn't a flood. This is a real army. The Babylonian army are coming down and they are going to occupy the land and the people are going to be consumed 
consumed by a foreign army. And the enemy of Israel will become a tool in the hand of God. And no flesh shall have peace. In other words, for the person who's hearing Jeremiah's message, the idea is, hey, I know this will happen to other people, but it won't happen to me. It won't affect me. It won't affect me and it won't affect my family because we'll find a place to hide. We'll find a place to run away. We'll buy some acreage in Idaho and we'll build a bunker and we'll stock it with food. And when the Holocaust comes, we won't have to worry about it. And Jeremiah is basically saying, everyone, everywhere, it's going to create a mechanism. Look what it says. No flesh shall have peace. And by the way, when you resist God and you rebel against God and you walk away from God, there is that constant source of agitation. And so in verse 13, it says, they've sown wheat but reaped thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but do not profit. But be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. You all know what that means. What a person sows, they also reap. By the way, what you sow, you will reap. You sow anger, you sow, sow lust, you sow rebellion, you sow disobedience. Here's the point that, that Jeremiah is painting in the picture. Their planting won't produce any crops that are worth harvesting. Isolation, rebellion, disobedience, superficiality. And so he paints a third picture. And by the way, there's many more pictures to go when we get to chapter 13. Now it's the picture of the evil neighbor in verse 14. Thus says the Lord, against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit, behold... I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. When it says, thus says the Lord, against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance. The term touch is very, very interesting in the Hebrew language. Do you remember when you were a kid driving around and if you had a brother or a sister and you heard this sound? He's touching me. It usually meant not in a good way. What do you mean he's touching? He's touching me. He's invading my space. In the Hebrew, it can mean to lie parallel to or in a contiguous manner. I guess if I were to try and create an image, it would be like if I said um, Colorado touches Wyoming in the north and it touches New Mexico in the south. Now, does the dirt of Colorado actually touch the dirt of New Mexico? They lie side by side in a contiguous manner. They're bordering one another. And so this becomes an expression of the neighbors that surround Jerusalem and Judea. 
So he's talking about the Syrians to the north. He's talking about the Ammonites and the Moabites. He's talking about the Egyptians to the south. And he says, against all my evil neighbors, why are they evil? You know why? You know the answer to this question. I've taught you better than this. They're evil because they've invited Judah and Jerusalem to worship their false gods, to worship their false idols, to say, you know what? The whole Bible thing, the whole Moses thing, the whole Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy thing, you know, the whole keeping kosher thing, you know, the whole unclean, clean thing, you know, the whole sexual purity thing. Nonsense. It's all nonsense. You see, the gods that really exist, they exist so that you can be happy and so that you can have fun. They exist so that you can drink wine and get drunk. They exist so that you can experience pleasure. They experience that you, so that you can get rich at other people's expenses. That's why they're evil. Which I have caused my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. You know, do you understand what the Lord is saying? People in Jerusalem and Judah are going, well, what if Jeremiah is right? Let's go to Ammon. Let's go to Moab. Let's go to Syria. Let's go to Babylon. Let's go to Egypt. Let's go anywhere but here. And the Lord said, I'll find you. And I'll still punish you. For the person who says, I'll run away from judgment. I'll run away from the consequences. I know there are wicked and weird things that I've done, but I really won't have to suffer the consequences. And the Lord will say, you know what? I'll follow you and I'll find you. And you'll still have to face the consequences. And then in verse 15, it says, then it shall be after I've plucked them out that I will return. Look what it says. Look at the promise. And I'll have compassion on them. And bring them back, everyone to his heritage and everyone to his land. Do you understand what you're reading? In chapter 12, verse 15, when Daniel the prophet was pouring over the scroll of Jeremiah and he stumbles on chapter 12, verse 15, and it says, you mean, then, at, then it shall be after I have plucked them out that I will return and have compassion on them. What? What? There's consequences and there's judgment, but guess what? I have a plan and a purpose for you. I'm still going to make nice with you. Even when you suffer the horrible consequences of a life of rebellion and disobedience, guess what? I'm going to bring you back to a place where I could actually use you to accomplish my plans and my purposes. I suspect that when Daniel read this, his heart filled with hope, and his eyes filled with tears. Because in chapter 12, verse 15, he began to realize that even though they found themselves in a place of captivity, and even though they found themselves living out the consequences of a nation that had refused to follow God, that there was hope and there was compassion. Daniel was in captivity when he read this, and he began to communicate with the people the reality of begin to prepare your hearts and begin to prepare your families to return to the place where God is going to fill fulfill plans and purposes in our life. 
And in verse 16, it says, and it shall be if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. The passage seems to suggest that his neighbors, Moab, Babylon, Syria, Egypt, the once hostile nations that surrounded the people of Israel would have this amazing new opportunity to learn the ways of God. In Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iran, all around the countries that surround Israel. There's a God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that God loves us. And that God has sent a Messiah. And that God has a plan and a purpose even for the land. And look what it says. And if it shall be, if they will learn carefully the ways of my people, the idea being the covenant that's been established to swear by my name, the implication seems to be a vision of a redeemed people in a redeemed land. Can you believe it? A redeemed people living in a redeemed land, honoring God. The specific application is for each and every one of our hearts. The redemption of the land begins with each and every one of us. Do you realize that your heart becomes redeemed the moment you receive Christ as your Savior? You turn from your sin. You love him and you trust him. And then Jesus occupies your heart. And when it says they will have the opportunity to learn the ways of the Lord and swear by Jehovah's name, as they once taught Ephraim to swear by false deities, I think it means... I'm going to show you how you can keep your promise to the true and living God. And you can keep your promises in a way that makes sense. Let me give you yet another example. Have you ever made a promise to God only to break that promise? And you felt bad about it. I know I promised God that I would stop smoking. I know that I promised God that I would stop drinking. I know that I promised God that I would stop Partying. I know that I promised God that I would stop this and I stopped that. I know I promised God that I'd read my Bible and that I would pray and that I would go to church. I know I promised God that if this happened and this happened, I would keep my promise. And then you broke your promise and you, the guilt and the condemnation began to fill your heart. And you thought, oh, here I go again, just making and breaking promises. But that the Lord Jesus could come into your life. And he could give you the strength. And he could empower you by your Holy Spirit. To make promises that you can keep. But look what it says in verse 17. But if they do not obey. I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation. Says the Lord. Look again. But if they do not obey. If they obey. Good times. If they disobey, I'll utterly pluck them up and I will destroy that nation. What else? If the nations reject God, if the nations reject God's plan, if they refuse to accept God's plan, if they refuse to accept God's purposes, here's the promise. I'll destroy that nation. 
In his book, The End of Christendom, Malcolm Muggridge makes this powerful observation. He says, I conclude that civilizations like every other human creation wax and wane by the nature of the case. There can never be a lasting civilization any more than there can be a lasting spring or a lasting happiness in an individual life or a lasting stability in a society. It's in the nature of man and of all that he constructs to perish. And it must ever be so. The world is full of the debris of past civilizations and others are known to have existed which have not left any debris behind them, but they just disappeared. He goes on to say that, quote, whatever their ideology may be, from the Garden of Eden onwards, Such dreams of lasting felicity have cropped up and no doubt always will. But the realization is impossible for the simple reason that a fallen creature like man, though capable of conceiving perfection and aspiring after it, is in himself and in his works forever imperfect. Thus, he is fated to exist in the no man's land between the perfection he can conceive And the imperfection that characterizes his own nature and everything that he does. Let me help you with it. Do you ever imagine what it would be like to live a life of total obedience and submission to God? Where everything that you say and everything that you do honors him. And then you try and then you fail. And then you realize that there's one man. We sang about it. A sinless man. A guiltless man. A perfect man. Who loved his father in every way and who obeyed his father in every way and who submitted to his father in every way. And everything that he thought and everything that he said and everything that he did Every moment of every day in every way reflected the power and purity and majesty and glory of God. And you begin to realize something. That that's why you're accepted. It isn't because you're perfect, it's because he's perfect. It isn't because of your obedience, it's because of his obedience. It isn't because of your sacrifice, it's because of his sacrifice. It isn't because of your obedience, it's because of his obedience. Because by one man's disobedience, the world was condemned through the obedience of one person. Everyone can be made perfect. I know what you're thinking, how is that even possible? How is it even possible that through the submission and the obedience of one perfect person, Jesus, there's hope for every person. And there's hope for everyone. And so Jeremiah is reminding them, there is hope for the nations if they'll trust the Lord. You know, someone said that nations go in cycles. Someone said they go... From bondage to spiritual faith, spiritual faith to courage, 
Courage to liberty, liberty to abundance, abundance to selfishness, selfishness to apathy, apathy to dependency, dependency to bondage, bondage to spiritual faith, spiritual faith to courage, courage to freedom, freedom to abundance, abundance to selfishness, selfishness to complacency, complacency to apathy, apathy to fear, fear to dependency, dependency to bondage. Just like nations and civilizations go in cycles, I think so also the human heart. Bondage to sin. To the realization of spiritual faith. Spiritual faith to courage. You know what that means? A willingness not only to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. But then to live your life as if that is the truth. And with that courage comes liberty and freedom. And with that freedom comes abundance. But will you fall into the trap? Will you allow abundance to create selflessness or selfishness? Will you allow your abundance to be shared or will you keep it for yourself by the way everything Jesus does he does not so that he can have but so that you can have there's more pictures to be painted and they will be painted in chapter 13 but we're going to have communion now and I'm going to encourage you to examine your hearts And ask yourself this question. Is my life marked by apathy and dependency and bondage or spiritual faith and courage and freedom? If you want spiritual faith, it means to have confidence in all that Jesus has said. And all that Jesus has done, that his sacrifice was really for you. His redemption is so that you could experience freedom. And if that's your heart, it really is as simple as praying a simple prayer. Heavenly Father, my heart is sometimes filled with selfishness and complacency and apathy and fear and dependency and clearly bondage to my selfish desires. And I want that to go away. I want to crave what Jesus craves and I want what he wants. I desire what he desires. And Lord, I understand that in order to have that, I've got to have a new life. And that new life means a willingness to abandon my old life and embrace a new one. A one where I can experience real love and real joy and real freedom. Lord, throughout history, you've peered through time and space and offered invitations to people. To love you and to trust you. To abandon wickedness and selfishness. And to embrace grace. Your unmerited favor based on what Jesus Christ has done. 
And so, Lord, I pray for each and every person that they would have that prayer. Come into my heart. Forgive my sin. Wash me and cleanse me. Fill my heart with love for you and a willingness to know you and obey you and submit to you. Lord, cause me to depend upon you. Lord, I know that that's a hard, it's an easy prayer to pray, but it's a hard one to submit to. Particularly when you start taking stuff away from me and I have to depend upon you. But Lord, we pray that we would learn the lesson quickly and fruitfully. And so, Father, I commit these men and women to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.